Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Julia Ham to the show. Julia is a visionary leader at the center of the transformation underway in the electric power sector to a clean and modern energy future. For the past 20 years, she has been advising and collaborating with utilities, solution providers, and government agencies on business models, grid modernization, and clean energy policies, strategies, and programs. Julia guides and oversees all of SEPA's research, education, and collaboration activities for its 1,100 member companies, including over 725 electric utilities. Julia, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Julia, thank you. Julia, where in the world are you? I am sitting in my house in Arlington, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. And how's the weather out there? It's actually a beautiful day. Clear sky, sun's out, although I hate to admit I haven't stepped outside yet, I, so I have no idea what the temperature is. <laughs> it looks got lovely, your, though. <laughs> you haven't got your fresh air for the day? I haven't. Normally, normally, I'm the dog walker, but when I got up this morning, my husband had already taken the dog out, so I didn't even get to do that. <laughs> I have three little ones, and we have two dogs, and they all get to take turns, so I'm safe from that chore. <laughs> Well, I, I enjoy it, so it's it's nice to, to have a reason to, to get out and get some fresh air. Absolutely. So, Julia, i like to open my show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Well, the first thing that comes to mind takes me back to my childhood, my upbringing, and I grew up in a very small town in upstate New York, and the fact that is always shocking to people is to hear that I went to a public high, a public school, not a private school, a public school, and my graduating class was 23 people. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so that, that, you know, when people ask me that question, what's, you know, sort of what's something surprising about your life or an interesting fact that that tends to be my go to because everyone's like, no, 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 you mean you went to a private school? I'm like, no, I went to a public school. And that that was how big my class was. Well, considering most elementary classes, just the class themselves, individual classes, 23 <laughs> right. people, that, that is pretty amazing. So I'm going to assume it was a, um, it wasn't due to a, you know, a low success rate. So give me more backstory on that. <laughs> well, in fact, you know, so, so I should the size of the class was 23 people. Not all 23 people actually successfully <laughs> graduated. I think that number was actually 18 or 19. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just grew up in a, in a very small town in rural upstate New York. Uh, my mom taught in the school that I went to, and it actually was a single building kindergarten through 12th grade school. So, uh, 
you know, sort of very small town environment. And my dad was actually also a, a CEO of a, of a local nonprofit, um, coincidentally. So it just was, you know, a really different experience than my world today living in the Washington, D.C. area. But, you know, actually right now it's pretty interesting sitting here in these these days of COVID-19 and being confined largely to my house. It is very reminiscent, actually, of my childhood because things are much simpler today in my life. And it in many ways reminds me of my childhood growing up in upstate New York, where you know, we didn't, I couldn't walk down the street to a friend's house to play because our nearest neighbors were far down the road and didn't have kids the same age as me. Uh, so I spent a lot of time playing in our yard with my brother and my sister and, you know, sort of just doing things around the house. And there wasn't a lot going on in terms of, you know, there weren't museums to go to or a lot of other social activities happening in, in rural upstate New York. So it's been it's been pretty interesting actually to see the parallels between my life over the past two and a half months uh, with my childhood and entire upbringing um, in upstate New York. That really is interesting, and you know, to tee off on that, I've heard of a couple of experiments. I think specifically from the New York area, where they're trying to work this. Um, one room schoolhouse idea where mm. they put children of you know different ages in a, in one classroom and as you mentioned during this time of covid i have a 7 year old a 10 year old and an 11 year old and they've all been studying you know in our formal dining room around the table and i've assigned the 11 year old to grade the 10 year old work and the 10 year old <laughs> to 7 year old but also by osmosis when i'm talking to the you know 11 year old about her homework or what she's studying the other two are right there listening in and, you know, fundamental to learning any new subject is learning the vocabulary behind it. And so I'm hearing, I'm, I'm watching them pick up these words, this language that I'm using with the 11-year-old and subsequently the 7- and the 10-year-old. I think it's a very, very interesting little experiment because they're all sitting around the table together, doing their homework together, having conversation. They're all getting their work done. But it's very reminiscent of that one-room schoolhouse to me. Yeah. Well, you know what? Actually, now you've spurred my mind. Maybe I should have a new interesting fact about my life. So when I was in first grade, actually, that we were in a four room schoolhouse. So it wasn't a one room schoolhouse. It was four classrooms with a small shared cafeteria slash gym. Um, but after my first grade year, they closed that building down and moved everybody into the same central location. But I almost had a one room schoolhouse experience in my life. Wow. That's pretty amazing. So, you know, you mentioned your dad and nonprofit earlier. I think that's a good segue to share a little bit about your current organization. Yeah, absolutely. So I am the CEO of a nonprofit called the Smart Electric Power Alliance, or we call it SEPA. And so we are, our vision is to get to a carbon-free energy system by 2050. And the mission that we are embarking upon to get us towards that vision is ensuring that we have a smart transition to a clean and modern energy system. So really focusing on the electric power piece of the economy and helping to increase the amount of clean energy that's being used, um, helping customers make smart energy choices 
and really ultimately just ensuring that we are bringing our uh, century plus old electric power system into the modern day as fast as possible to help with the climate change problem. So it sounds like a great organization. From a tactical perspective, you know, you mentioned helping customers. How do you help customers make better decisions? Yes. Yeah, so, so we actually don't work directly with customers ourselves, but what we do is we work with the industry. So we work with electric utilities who serve customers. We work with technology manufacturers and providers um, and also with policymakers and regulators, as well as other stakeholders to help work through some of the barriers that exist um, and really create new business opportunities that will enable customers to be able to have access to clean energy and to take advantage of new technologies uh, sooner than they might otherwise be able to. So can you give me an example of like the business model? Yeah, sure. So we, in terms of the business model for SEPA, I mean, we essentially have a, a variety of different things that we do. I mean, one is we are a membership organization. So all of the types of entities that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago pay annual membership dues to belong to the organization. We also have a big part of what we do, which is, as you'll realize momentarily, is somewhat challenged right now. We spend a lot of time convening groups of people in person, often very large groups of people. So in a normal year, of which, of which this is not, we have a 20,000 person trade show where people come together to uh, both conduct business, but also learn and uh, really help further the industry. So we have everything from this 20,000 person trade show to dozens of other uh, conferences and events throughout the year where we bring people together, uh, again, to talk about these industry issues. So there's a lot of, uh, from the business model standpoint, a lot of revenue, uh, a lot of our revenue comes from the events side of our business. Then we also do have some federal funding support. So we have some uh, grants and contracts with the U.S. Department of Energy with uh, the National Institute for Standards and Technology. And so that is part of the business model as well, is executing on grants where there is alignment between our work and the interest of different federal agencies. And then we also do some work for individual member companies when they need assistance with something particular for their business that's related to our mission. Uh, they will, under a contract mechanism, essentially hire us to come in and help them with things that are related to clean energy and carbon reduction. So lots of different pieces to our business model. Thank you for sharing that. And if you don't mind, and I'm asking because I think it's extremely relevant today, you know, a 20,000 person um, event is a, is a large event. And, you know, we don't know what the future holds. And again, if you're open to sharing, what are some of the ideas or you know workarounds that you're thinking of this year and perhaps into the future if you can't get back to a 20,000 you know, person gathering? And again, if you're open to sharing, I'd really appreciate it. I think the audience could really learn from you. Sure. Well, I wish I had the answers. <laughs> I don't have the answers. We don't have the answers. 
but we are exploring a lot of different possibilities. Our that big show, which it, we actually are a fifty percent owner of that show, we co-own it with another association. That event is supposed to take place in September. So we are exploring possibilities, including uh, having the entire event outdoors instead of indoors. Uh, we are exploring possibilities of doing parts or all of it virtually. Um, so, you know, those are the two primary alternative options, you know, in the event, the likely event that we are not able to hold the event in person as planned in, indoors at a convention center. But it is it is a tough nut to crack, you know, certainly those of us who are in the events business are spending a lot of time thinking about what, what is the future of our business going to look like? You know, hopefully we will see uh, a successful vaccine developed before too long uh, that's readily available. And once we get to that point, you know, I anticipate we will get back to the point of being able to, you know, with likely with some changes to how we operate, still get back conceptually to the way we had done things before. Uh, but until that time, you know, that, that for me is the big question mark. The uncertainty of the timing of a vaccine makes it very challenging for us to plan not only for our big trade show in September, but even for the other events that we have scheduled for Q1 and Q2 of 2021, um, it's, it's very hard to plan with the uncertainty of knowing whether or not there's going to be a vaccine available that will allow us to have those events as previously scheduled. Well, I really appreciate you allowing me to ask that question and answering it. And I hope you do eventually get back to some sense of you know normality. You mentioned virtual, and I have to tell you, I've been attending quite a few virtual events and conferences this past two months. And there was one that I had attended by a group called Island Innovation. And it was by far the best one that I attended. And the part I really liked about it was, and I know it sounds a little chaotic at first, but I think they had 1,300 attendees, seven or 800 show up. But it was the robust chat opportunity and the opportunity to make connections quickly in the chat and take those conversations offline, similar to how you would do in an in-person event. So, right. um, you know, again, I, I really hope you get back to in-person. And, you know, you mentioned the outdoor, which would be really interesting. But um, I just wanted to share that with you. Yeah. No, I, you know what? I've, and what we're talking about within our team is even if we get back to a point where we can have the same type of large in-person gatherings that we had before, we should still be going down the path of having more virtual events as well, because as a mission-based organization, we want to reach and influence as many people as we can. And there are so many people, whether it's because of budget constraints or their family situation makes it difficult for them to travel, lots of different reasons why it is hard for people to often come to in-person events. So again, as a mission-based organization, virtual events create an opportunity for us to significantly expand our reach. So it is a, it is a uh, no regrets move for us to invest in the development of virtual events, 
even if on very short order, we get back to having the same large in-person gatherings we had been having before. So it's, it's not an either or, it should be both. It sounds like that improv line, right? It's yes and. Yeah, exactly. I like that. And, you know, I see one of your areas of um, focus here is grid modernization. I'm looking at your website right now. And some of the conversations I've had in the last couple of months have been around resiliency. And Mm -hmm. I know some of my friends and people in my network, at least a few weeks ago, had challenges around internet and people actually had power go out for an hour or two. In a time like this, what are the kind of conversations you've been having regarding, you know, the grid and resiliency? Yeah, so resiliency has always been an important part of our work, and it has been increasingly important as the years have gone by, right? I would say really the first significant event that created an uptick in that conversation was super 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 storm sandy in the northeast um you know back uh, i don't gosh i don't even remember 2012 i think was the year um and that but then since then we've had increasing number of and severity of hurricanes we now have the wildfires in california and australia and colorado and other you know other parts of both the us and across the world so there has been this increasing focus on the issue of resiliency, really meaning, you know, we can't necessarily prevent the power from going out. I mean, we can do things. We already have really good reliability. It is pretty rare, actually, for the power to go out. But resiliency is really more about how quickly can we get it back on? So if it's going to go out, how quickly can we get it back on? And in this time of covid the, you know, the conversations I've been having are really around thinking about and trying to predict people's uh, long-term shifts in perceptions and concerns. Because if we think about COVID, COVID obviously is a crisis. And in this case, it, it is a health crisis. But it also, to your point, Uh, in in your original question, I think has elevated the general population's sensitivity to the fact that real crises can happen that are unexpected, and we need to be prepared for them. So this time it was a health crisis, but next time it could be either, you know, a some sort of weather event, or it could be some sort of cybersecurity attack, or a whole variety of other things that could take down the electric power grid. And so how do we make sure that both as individuals, as communities, as society at large, that we have built in resiliency so that if and when something like that happens, we're prepared? You know, I think you're so, sorry, go ahead. Well, and I was just going to say, you know, I sort of go back to, for me, the question is how much of that is going to stick? I mean, I think people are very, the awareness is very heightened of it right now. But once we get out of this crisis, is it going to stick or are people sort of going to put it behind them and sort of go back to the the way they used to operate and, and not necessarily think as much about, okay, I, I need to be prepared. So I, I think you're correct there. And especially your part about people's perspectives. I know that 
maybe not on the consumer level, but people that I speak to in perhaps commercial real estate or other business owners, you know, this crisis has um, exposed, if not accelerated, some of the vulnerabilities that we face as mm-hmm. a you know community and as a nation. Mm-hmm. And I think resiliency you know plays a big part in that. And I'm I'm speaking to you know commercial real estate brokers here locally in the Dallas area. And they're absolutely talking about things like, you know, backup power, generators, battery walls. What does this look like going forward? Because if there is a double whammy, you know, I mentioned the islands earlier and I was on that island innovation um, conference Mm -hmm. and they were talking about, yes, the islands have been devastated because 90% of their revenue comes from tourism, but now they're also facing hurricane season. So it's a double whammy for them. So how do they prepare for, you know, this health crisis in combination with a climate or perhaps weather crisis going forward. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think there's a certain sector of the um, population, you know, perhaps I would call it business owners or people that own property or, you know, um, have perhaps more at risk or more at stake, definitely researching right now what that resiliency looks like. So I, I, I agree with you strongly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in our work with electric utilities, it is absolutely front of mind for them as well. You know, they are thinking about, you know, particularly utilities who ha- are, are in an area that is especially uh, prone to, again, whether it's wildfires or hurricanes or flooding uh, or ice storms, you know, really thinking about where as the provider of electricity for an entire large area or group of people where can they be putting in infrastructure that uh, can serve as essentially community crisis centers when something like this happens, right? I mean, so that the community has somewhere to go to charge their phones, people who have, you know, who require electricity for medical devices in order to be able to get gas, you know, all of these things to get food, refrigerated food, all of these things that are necessary um, so that even if power can't come back to the entire system right away, where are the select locations throughout that utility service territory that the utility can make sure that there will be power so that everyone in the community can benefit from that. That's a really good point. Thank you. So switching gears a little bit, you know, the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. Now, you've been CEO, I believe, for 16 years, Mm -hmm. which is an awfully long tenure considering the turnover that many public companies have in this day and age. But, you know, and I'm sure you're not held to some of the same pressures, but, you know, you've been with this organization. You mentioned your father in the nonprofit. So I know something in your blood is keeping you there. But why have you been with CEPA so long and what keeps you driving this mission forward? Yeah, so it's it is a little bit of a long and complicated story. But I actually started working at SEPA in 1999 when I was just one year out of college. So back then, the organization actually didn't have any employees itself. It had a contract with a small consulting company that provided services and essentially acted as staff for the organization. And so uh, I started working for that consulting company, and SEPA was my primary client. And so I did that. And again, this was very entry level. I was just a year out of college, um, was there doing that for a few years, left the consulting company to go do something else for a couple of years, 
And while I was gone, the board at SEPA decided to terminate the contract with the consulting company and to ask me to come back as the first actual employee of the organization. So I did that in January of 2004. And essentially, at that point in time, we wiped the slate clean. So while legally and technically the organization had been around since 1992, when I came back in 2004, we started over. So I was employee number one. We didn't really have any ongoing products or services that we were offering. We had a very small handful of member companies that were committed to the organization that were paying dues. So we had a very base budget to pay my salary. Uh, But it was this fantastic opportunity for me when I was in my mid to late 20s to take a risk and, you know, just take on something that I didn't know if it was going to succeed or fail. But, you know, I didn't have any kids. I didn't have a mortgage. You know, if there was ever time to take a risk in my career, it was the right time to do it. So I jumped in and it's been this phenomenal experience. I mean, essentially, I've had the opportunity to serve as an entrepreneur in the nonprofit space because I started out again as employee number one, um, you know, have built the team up to now uh, about 50 folks on our team directly, but we also have a subsidiary that we spun out to run our trade shows for us. And they have another uh, few dozen people that work for the subsidiary. So it's just been amazing to grow. And I think that's what's kept me. Obviously, I love the mission. I'm passionate about the work. I'm passionate about doing something to help with climate change. I'm passionate about the the electric power industry. But from a day-to-day standpoint, I think what's kept me so motivated is we are in this space that's constantly changing and evolving. And it has been about the opportunity to grow a business from the ground up. So, you know, I, I, you know, as employee number one, I had to get payroll set up and figure out how to do that. And I had to buy the first computer and, you know, all of, all of that stuff that is required to get a business started. I had to do in those early years and then build the team and then learn uh, about how do you run a, like, how do you run a business? How do you lead a team? I didn't have experience in any of those things. So I've been learning by doing. Um, and it's just been, you know, really interesting for me to do that. Um, and it's, there's always something new uh, to get addressed within, both within our industry, but also within our organization. And, and that's really what keeps me motivated is this opportunity to uh, keep trying new things, keep doing new things, you know, really helping uh, move forward an agenda that's help that's really driving our mission. And um, yeah, it's just this constant, constant change, I think is what keeps me excited and, you know, probably frustrates the heck out of a lot of members of our team, (laughs) but we're very thoughtful in our hiring, you know, to make sure that we are transparent with people about like, if you're looking for a very, steady routine job where you're going to come in and do the same thing every day, SEPA is not the right organization for you. You've got to be comfortable with change to fit within our organization because we're all about driving change. And therefore, as an organization, we have to be willing to constantly change ourselves. So it sounds like you're keeping a lot of people on their toes. (laughs) 
that's a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned a few there, and I'm going to ask the question specifically. You know, what are some specific learnings or aha surprise moments that you've had in your journey? Oh, that's that's a good question. One of I don't know if it's so much an aha. Well, maybe it was an aha moment. I would say in the early years after I took over as the head of the organization, I put my head down and I worked for years. And it wasn't until probably about 10 years in where I lifted my head up and started to engage with CEOs of other organizations. And for me, I had an aha moment of, I should have done this 10 years ago because I've reinvented, (laughs) I've recreated the wheel a lot of times that I probably didn't need to. So, you know, I, I now am very passionate about being part of a variety of different CEO cohorts where I am learning from CEOs of other organizations. They're learning from me. We're sharing best practices. And so that was an aha moment for me was that it's important to do that. And in hindsight, I should have done it a lot earlier because I, I, and again, in hindsight, invested a lot of time and energy figuring things out for myself that I could have gotten to the same place faster by engaging with others who had already been through those same experiences and could have shared their perspective with me. So that, that was definitely a pretty big aha moment. Um, you know, and as I talked to other first time CEOs, you know, people who are taking on CEO roles for the first time, that is always a piece of advice that I give to them is, you know, it's really easy to just put your head down and get to work and go, but you've got to make the time to lift your head up and engage with others who have useful perspectives for you. Well, thank you for sharing that. And dovetails nicely into my last question, which is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? I think the advice that I would give is that to be most effective as a leader, what I have found most important is a combination of transparency and compassion. And I would say, I don't know that I... I did not know that from the beginning. That is something I have learned over time. And this COVID-19 crisis actually has been a great moment just to reinforce how important the combination of those two things are, because we are in a time of uncertainty. You know, everyone, including all of the employees at SEPA, are, uh, you know, feeling fear and you know, just uncertainty about what the future is going to look like. And we do not know the answers. We don't know necessarily specifically what the future is going to look like for our organization, given that so much of our revenue comes from events. But I have seen the success over the past few months of me just being transparent with the team and compassionate with them at the same time. And that has been, you know, the, the feedback that I've gotten from the members of our team with just this immense sense of gratitude for that approach that I've taken ha- has really proven, you know, that that approach is 
is the right one, or at least, you know, not to say it's the only right one, but it certainly has been very effective. So, so that advice I think is front and center for me right now because of the particular situation is just this combination of transparency and compassion is very powerful as a leader. You know, I, I so like that recently I heard a speaker talking about leadership and she said essentially what you said right now is that things are so complicated and uncertain right now. You know, we're not sure we're sitting at home. We're not sure if we're parents, spouses, employees, lines are all blurred. Mm -hmm. And the more compassion a leader, like you mentioned, can have for their employees while also maintaining that transparency, if you will, let you, that, like you said, that, you know, even from a leadership position, you don't know everything that's going to happen next, but you're willing to work through it with your team and allow them to work through it too. I think it's so important. So yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Well, one, one final thought that just triggered was triggered by what you said, you know, so we've, we do these quarterly surveys of our employees. We ask the same questions every quarter to see how things are going but in the survey we did at the end of the first quarter this year, somebody made a comment that has really stuck with me. And they said that one of their learnings from this time of COVID-19 is that no news is still news. And that really, again, has stuck in my head because it's a reminder that as a leader, if you're not constantly communicating and being transparent, people are going to make up their own storylines and fill in the blanks. So I've been very conscious over the, the past couple of months of every week we're having staff meetings. And even if I, even if there's no change from the previous week, I'm intentional about saying last week we talked about X, Y, Z. I have no new information. Nothing has changed. And people are really appreciating that directness because otherwise they're making assumptions that something's changing, but you're just not telling them. I, I think it's so important what you just said. And I think it's worth repeating that no news is still news. And, you know, for anyone in my audience right now that's in the leadership position, I think, you know, you can't emphasize that enough that you have to be in constant communication. You don't want your team or your employees guessing what's going on or thinking about what's going on, or as you said, making up stories about what they think might be going on. So even if you have no other status report to report or to come back with, at least say it's status quo, whatever, you know, wherever we were last week, we're here this week. So exactly, I, I really appreciate that, Julia. And I so enjoyed speaking with you. Is there anything that we have not explored that you'd like to share before we go? Uh, nothing comes to mind, Raj. This has been great. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Well, Julia, thank you so much. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you want to show your support, please share our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.